here this morning and being able to talk to you. I haven't taught since November, so it's exciting for me to be here. Um, I am thankful to Christy for teaching over the last two weeks, getting us kicked off, um, our semester kicked off and starting and giving me a little extra time um, to build my strength back. But I am back. Put your seatbelts on. I have 22 pages of notes. Hopefully it won't take me that long to do it. <laughs> so today we are going to be looking at 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 14. Last week we saw that Paul was encouraging Timothy to fan into flame the gift that he had received at the laying on of hands. Why would Paul feel it was necessary to tell Timothy to do this? Well, we're not given the specific answers to that question within the text. However, based upon the context of this letter being written, we can make a pretty educated guess that Timothy's flame is beginning to flicker. It's beginning to grow dim, and it will soon go out if he does not attend to it. In Isaiah 42, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, tells us about the Lord's chosen servant, who we now know is Jesus Christ. And of Jesus, this is what he says of him in verse 3. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. The Lord Jesus himself is not going to quench. He is not going to throw a bucket of water on a flame that is about to go out. But instead, he will breathe life into it. He will breathe life through his word and by his spirit. And he himself will fan into flame that faintly burning wick. And I believe that's exactly what we are looking at in our text today. We are looking at Paul's letter to Timothy and we are seeing the Holy Spirit fanning into flame the fire that is flickering in Timothy's heart. The flame is dimming because of his suffering for the gospel. And fear is like a bucket of water that will quench this flickering flame. But God did not give Timothy a spirit of fear, but instead he gave him a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And through this word, Paul is reminding Timothy of two very important things that we're going to look at today. He's reminding him of the God who can be trusted and he's reminding him of the preciousness and worthiness and power of God's gospel. Knowing God and his gospel are the very things that we need to fan into flame the flickering fire of Timothy's heart and empower him to walk into suffering next to Paul. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're feeling anxious Anxious at the increasing chaos of the world in which we live. The increasing hostility that we can feel pressing in on followers of Jesus in our own country. 
there seems to me to be a dark cloud looming ever closer. And we have begun to fear persecution for our faith that we've never had to experience. Maybe you, like Timothy, feel the temptation to draw back, to go quiet, to be ashamed, if, it, if you will, of the gospel in order to maintain safety and security. I pray that the Lord will use his word today to fan into flame the flickering fire in your heart that fear would like to quench. Perhaps you're here today and you're in the throes of suffering of a different sort. Not suffering necessarily for the sake of the gospel proclamation, but suffering because we live in a fallen world. And all around us are the consequences of that fall. Cancer, cancer treatments, marriages that are disintegrating, miscarriages, childlessness, job losses, loss of friendships. Suffering is suffering, regardless of the source. It's all suffering. And suffering is also water that can quench the fires of our faith. Is that not so? But the solution is the same. Whether you're suffering for the gospel proclamation or you're suffering because we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world, the solution to our suffering is the same. We need to fix our eyes on God and on his gospel. So it is my prayer that as we look at the text today, regardless of what is going on in your life, regardless of the fears that you are experiencing, that the Holy Spirit, through his word, will fan into flame the fire in your heart toward God and his gospel. So let's start our time with prayer. Gracious God in heaven, we ask that you would do this in each one of us. Lord, you know every single person in this room, every single person that's listening to my words right now. You know their heart. You know their struggles. You know their fears. And you know their suffering. Lord, would you minister to them, each individually, through the power of your word, by your spirit. I pray this in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, therefore. Now, we always need to stop when we hear the word therefore because it connects us to something. What's coming after this word, therefore, is connected to what was in the past, what he said previously. So let's read what came before. Let's pick up in verse 6. Back up in your text, in your Bibles, to verse 6. It says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Okay, now we get to our text for the week. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Wait, stop. What did that say? Whose prisoner? Nero's prisoner? No, his prisoner, our Lord's prisoner. 
I don't want us to miss this little message that I believe is in this word. Paul could have written anything, but he used that pronoun to describe what kind of prisoner he was. The rulers of Rome had made Paul prisoner, but Paul does not even acknowledge them. Not at all. He acknowledges that he is God's prisoner. There is a huge distinction between a king like Nero and God. Nero is evil and his purposes are evil, but God is not evil. God is good and all of his purposes are good. Nero has power, yes, but God actually has ultimate power. Nero is nothing more than a servant in the hands of God. In, in the hands of God. God has ultimate power. And already, through the word of God, we are being called to remember who God is. Your God is sovereign, and he is good. He is sovereign, and he is good. And nothing that happens to us here on this earth is outside of God's sovereign, watchful eye. Paul is in prison at the hands of Nero, but he is not Nero's prisoner. He is God's. And that means that nothing Nero can do to him can ultimately harm him, even if he puts him to death. And this is a beautiful picture of what Paul wrote years before in his letter to the Romans. Paul said this in Romans chapter 8. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he didn't just stay dead. He was raised. He is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or Nero, or cancer, or your enemy, or the United States government, or China, or whoever, who can separate us from the love of God? No, in all these things, we, those who are in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Ladies, we need to know this truth down into the depths of our souls as we are in the midst of suffering. You belong to a good and gracious and generous God who did not even spare his own son for you. And because of who God is, nothing that happens to you can ultimately harm you. If you are a prisoner because of the gospel, then you are God's prisoner. And there is no better and no safer place that you can be. May this truth alone fan into flame a smoldering wick. But let's continue. There's more. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, 
not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, he just keeps going on, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Do not be ashamed. To be ashamed is to be reluctant to do something through fear of embarrassment or humiliation. So what Paul is driving at is don't let the fear of persecution, don't let the fear of suffering, don't let my own imprisonment and my own pending execution keep you from keeping on with the work God has called you to do, to proclaim the testimony of our Lord. What is the testimony of our Lord? So often when we hear the word testimony, what comes to our mind is our personal testimonies, a testimony of our personal inner religious experience that we've had, private experience. But this is not what Paul is referring to here. The word testimony is the Greek word martyrion, which we can hear the word martyr in there. And it means literally witness, testimony, and points to a sharing publicly sharing of a publicly observed phenomenon. So when Paul speaks of the testimony of our Lord, he is speaking about the public proclamation of publicly observable events that actually happened in history. Jesus, our Lord, the Son of God, came to earth and made his dwelling among us. He was seen by people. They saw him. They heard his voice speaking to them. They could touch him. They could feel his skin. They saw him do miracles. They watched him die. They saw his resurrected body. They put their hands in his wounds. And they saw him ascend to heaven. Not just a handful of people, hundreds of people. This was not something that was done in secret or in private. This was public with many witnesses to bear testimony. This is what Paul is talking about. And he is calling Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, the public proclamations of the truth about the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of this event on our lives. Do not be ashamed. Do not be reluctant to proclaim the gospel message that has put me in prison for fear that you will end up where I am. But instead, Paul says, share with me in this suffering. Literally, it's translated co-share. Join me in my suffering. Share in suffering? There are a lot of things that I want to share in. Like a little trip to the Bahamas would be nice right about now in the wintertime. I want to share in the warmth. (laughs) But not sharing in suffering, I don't love it. I don't love suffering at all. Not at all. None of us do. This is not something we're going to jump into with joy and excitement. Everything in us fights against suffering. Everything in us wants to preserve our own personal comfort. We don't want to suffer. 
So how do we do that? How do we co-share in suffering? So how is Timothy and how are we to overcome our fear and fan into flame the gift that God has given us to persevere in the faith in the face of suffering and to persevere in proclaiming the gospel in the midst of persecution? How are we to do that? The answer is right in the text. Paul says, by the power of God right? We can't do this in our own power and in our own strength. We can't just pull ourselves up in our, by our bootstraps and do this. We will never be able to suffer well in our own strength. We don't have it. We're weak. But God has given all that we need, right? The power of God will enable us to do all that God has called us to do. Remember what Paul said in verse 7? God has not given us a spirit of fear. This fear that drives us to be ashamed of the gospel, does not come from God. Rather, what God gives his people is power, love, and a sound mind. God gives them the power to enable them to suffer and to persevere and to continue to proclaim and believe the gospel. What is the power of God? I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 1.16. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans at least 10 years before he wrote 2 Timothy. He wrote it long before he ever made his way to Rome. And he wrote it while he was ministering in Corinth for about a year and a half. Look at verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. And this is what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Here he's still saying it, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel is what? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying that the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation for all who would believe in it. It is one thing to say that you are unashamed of the gospel when sitting in a place of comfort, when the message of the gospel is is going unchallenged, And there is little to no opposition or suffering coming as a result of any bold proclamation of that. We've experienced that for the last 100, 200 years. Shifting sands. It's one thing to say I'm unashamed, but it's another thing entirely to say I am unashamed of the gospel when you're in shackles, when you're in darkness, when you're in suffering when you're in persecution, and when you're awaiting your own death. But here's Paul, still boldly proclaiming this gospel unashamedly, even as he waits death. How? Why? Because the power, the gospel he proclaims is the power of God. Because the gospel he proclaims is the very thing sustaining him in his suffering. What Paul is saying is we are not given a spirit of fear, but of power. What he's saying is that the power we are given to endure as we suffer unashamedly for the gospel is the very gospel we proclaim. Let me say that one more time. The power we are given to endure as we suffer unashamedly for the gospel is the very gospel we are proclaiming. How can this be? This is so because the gospel is ultimately a person. 
Look down again at the text at verse 9. What is the first word in verse 9? Who, right? Who saved us? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us. The gospel is ultimately a who. It is God and what he has accomplished for his people through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what Paul is doing in the midst of calling Timothy to be unashamed of gospel? He's reminding him of who this gospel is about and what he has done through his work and why this gospel is worth suffering for. So who is God? Within this brief passage of scripture, just seven to eight verses, Paul reveals to us who God is. We see that he is Father. He is the one who is initiating and planning salvation. He saved us and called us to a holy calling through grace for his purposes in Christ Jesus. This is about God. The gospel is about God. This is about his saving plan to redeem a people unto himself for his purposes that would glorify him. God is also the Son. We have God the Father. We have God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who by his appearing, the text tells us, brings salvation. He abolished death, and he brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. And then down in verse 14, we see that God is also the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in each believer, Paul says we guard the good deposit, the truth, the gospel proclamation. It is by this same Holy Spirit that dwells within each believer that we have the power to endure suffering. The role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is multifaceted, to be sure. We do not have the time to get into all of that. But know this, that he is the presence of God with you. You remember when Jesus said in the Great Commission to go into all the earth and proclaim the gospel, make disciples? And he says, behold, I will, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. How did he do that? He's doing that through his Holy Spirit. And he dwells individually in each one of us. We receive him as a gift from our good heavenly Father when we are saved. Peter said in Acts, in, um, said in, it's recorded in Acts 2.38, Peter said to the crowds, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are given immediately the Holy Spirit. He enters into you and lives within you 
as a deposit of all the good that is to come. He is the one, the Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to even repent and believe the gospel. He is the one who helps us to see and gives us understanding as we read and study scriptures. He is the one that gives us comfort in our distress. He is the power of God at work in our lives. He is the power of God that changes us into the image of Christ, degree by degree. And he is the power of God who strengthens us to persevere in the faith in the midst of suffering for the gospel. Acts 1.8 tells us, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to speak and proclaim the message of the gospel. We have one God, three distinct persons. He is Father, he is Son, and he is Spirit, and they all are working together to bring about salvation. All are working together to give us not a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Through specifically this Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Let that sink into your heart just for a moment. How good is our God that he would give us all that we need? All that we need. That he would dwell in us. Behold your God, ladies. But that's not all. Look at what God has done. That's who God is. Look at what he's done. Paul mentions two things specifically in the text. God saves and he calls. First, God saves. He is a saving God, which means we are people who need to be saved. Christy quoted this verse from John 3.16 last week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We love that verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see, the entire world is, is condemned because of sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are a people in need of salvation. And God in his grace and his mercy, he is offering that to all people. And any who believe in him, who put their trust in Jesus, are saved. And this is all of grace, the text tells us, right? It's not because of our good works. He didn't look down from heaven and say, oh, she's cute. I think I'm going to save her. We were a mess. We are all a mess. And it's 100% God's grace that he brings salvation, that he calls us to salvation, that he pursues us, that he gives us the faith to believe, that he empowers us through his spirit to repent and to trust in him. This is all of God's grace, and it's for his purposes, 
his eternal purposes. Did you catch that? This plan of God for salvation and calling a people is not plan B. God was not caught off guard in the garden. He was not stunned when Adam and Eve sinned and ushered in condemnation, right? This was not God's plan B. It wasn't God's plan B in the New Testament because Israel failed to do what they were supposed to do. This plan of redemption that he gave us in Christ Jesus was created before the ages began, but was made manifest or made visible when Jesus appeared. Before God spoke creation into existence, before he said, let there be light, salvation was already beginning to be played out. Jesus Christ, we are told, was the lamb slain before the foundations of the, the earth. This is another powerful truth to behold about the God who saves a people and his purpose and plan in creation and his purpose and plan for his creation. God is a saving, rescuing, and gracious God. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is pursuing the lost. This is who he is. He is a saving God, but he doesn't just save us. Look back at verse 9. It says that he saved and he called us to a holy calling. This wording is absolutely beautiful. Now, God could have, the, the text could have said that God saved us to live holy lives, and that would be true. But that's not the emphasis of what Paul is trying to get at in this. His emphasis is not on the holy lives. His emphasis is on a holy calling which will lead to holy living. In saving us, God calls us to more than we could ever even imagine. He calls us into the experience of both special privilege. What are we saved into? We are saved. We become children of God. We are members of his household. We are children of the king of kings. That is special privilege. We have all things in Christ. All the blessings of God are ours in Christ Jesus. That is special privilege that we've been saved into. We have his spirit dwelling with us. But we're also saved into responsibility. There's privilege and there's responsibility. Ladies, we're not just saved to go back to life as usual. We're not just saved to be given this ticket that we can stuff in our wallets, in our pockets, this free ticket that gets us into heaven when we die, and then we can forget about Jesus, we forget about Christianity, until that day when we're about to die. We pull out our ticket and say, here it is, Jesus. That's not what salvation's about. This is not the truth about salvation. We are saved into a holy calling. 
on God's initiative and by his power. We are called to not just deliverance or not just salvation, but to the worship of the one true God, which we know from Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. The worship of God is serving the king of kings in whatever capacity he's calling you to do. For Paul, his holy calling is what led to his suffering. He was called to be a preacher, right? To proclaim the gospel. He's called to be an apostle. He was called to teach, to be a teacher. And through that calling, there was suffering. Now, we're not called to the same thing as Paul. Some of us are called to the ministry of the home. And I just want to stop here for a minute because the ministry in the home has been demeaned in our day and age as if it's something that's just nothing. It's meaningless. If you want to do real ministry, you got to be out there in the world doing it. The ministry in the home is a holy calling. You're being called to love and serve your family through the grace and strength of God, to disciple your children. Disciple them. You get the privilege to disciple the children that God has given you. If he has given you children, to disciple your grandchildren. Ladies, this is a holy calling, and it matters for all of eternity. And do not let anyone tell you that it's not. Now, some of you in this place may be called to the workforce. That, too, is a holy calling. You are bringing the gospel to bear in a secular society. You are bringing the gospel into a secular workplace, and that is a holy calling as well. All who are saved, every person that is saved by the gospel of God, are called to a holy calling. We are his people. We belong to him. We are his treasured possession. Peter says... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then he goes on to tell us what our, what our holy calling is. It is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. You can do that. You can proclaim the excellencies of the God that you are learning about in this Bible study. And you're called to do that wherever you go. I want to tell you a quick little story. On Friday morning, I had to go up to Grandview Health and I had to get some blood work done. I hate getting blood work done. I hate needles. And the the lady that was doing my blood work was the most amazing phlebotomist that I've ever met in my entire life. She was unbelievable. I, I was immediate, she was immediately kind and compassionate. She said my name right. Nobody says my name right. She said, Cherie? I get Cheryl, Cherry, you know, every variation of Cherie, or that's not Cherie, but she said it right. 
So we had this great conversation over my name. She brought me back. She's taking 10 vials of blood out of me. And, and we're just sitting there. She's so kind. And she's just chatting with me, probably trying to distract me from all the things. And so anyway, she says, all out of the blue, she says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your blood results will come back perfect. And I was like, what? That is a woman who brought Christ to the workplace. And she comforted and she made it known that she was doing that. So we had a great little conversation about prayer and Um, But I couldn't stop thinking about how she did that. It was so gentle. It was not obnoxious in any way. Just mentioning. I mean, she didn't know if I was a believer or not. She didn't know me at all. And yet she boldly, I think, said, I'm going to pray for you. And that opened the door, right? It opens the door for further conversation. If God is calling somebody, man, will that open the door to create more conversation? Yes. If there's hands up, that's fine. Doesn't need to go anywhere. But what a beautiful example, how easy it can be to bring Christ to the workplace, to bring Christ to wherever you are, no matter what circumstances are going on in your life, wherever you are, whatever you do, whether it's in the home or it's in the workplace, whether you're going to doctor's appointments, in places that you never thought you'd have to be, you're rubbing us against people, and God has you there intentionally. So you can be, live into your calling, proclaiming his excellencies. And Paul says that this holy calling of his and ours is to preach the gospel. It doesn't always have to be the whole thing, but it could be just initiating that conversation. And that's the reason for his suffering. But you know what? Paul doesn't care. He does not care one bit. He remains unashamed, unafraid to proclaim the gospel no matter where he is, even from the darkness of prison. Why? How? Why is he? Look at verse 12. He tells us why. He says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know whom I have believed. Then he goes on and instructs Timothy, this is how you do this. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Follow what I've taught you. Keep on keeping on. Follow the pattern of the sound words you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Listen, Paul remains unshaken and unafraid regardless of his circumstances. He is remaining faithful to his calling, whatever that is, regardless of his present circumstances. And this is what he's encouraging Timothy to do through his letter. Don't give in to a spirit of fear, but instead, don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in my suffering for the gospel and follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me. Persevere, keep the faith, remain in the love that you have in Christ Jesus. Hold fast and guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. How? How is Paul, Timothy, and you and me going to keep on in this life? The key is in this phrase, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day 
what has been entrusted to me. I know whom I have believed. Paul's confidence, his security, rests completely on and wholly in the God in whom he believed. He knows him, not intellectually, not just factually, not just informationally, but experientially. He's experienced God. There's a difference. You can know all about someone. You can know information, but having not, and still not know them. You can have a lot of information of God, about God, and still not know him. But it's in the knowing him, personally, intimately, that Paul's confidence rests. He knows God. He knows his power. He's experienced the power of God at work in his own life, saving him, changing him, calling him to a holy calling. He knows God's grace and mercy and forgiveness personally as he came face to face with Jesus on that road to Damascus. When Jesus called him out of his ignorance and called him out of sin and then offered him forgiveness, Paul had a clear conscience. He shouldn't have a clear conscience. The guy was brutal. And yet here he is on the other side of things, having experienced the grace and forgiveness of God fully. He walked unashamed of the gospel with a clear conscience. It changed him. Paul knew the presence of God through the Spirit of God. He knew this in plenty, and he knew this in poverty. He knew this in freedom, and he knew this in imprisonment. He was comforted. He was empowered. He spoke the words of Scripture. He was guided and directed and led to the highest palaces to proclaim the gospel. He knew the presence of God. He knew the sovereignty of God over his life, and ministry. He was God's servant, his slave, God's apostle, God's prisoner. He knew God. And because of who God is, he was convinced. Like you could not change his mind on this. Regardless of his circumstances, he was convinced that God would be the one to ultimately guard what had been entrusted to Paul, and that God would be the one that would ultimately be guarding what had also been entrusted to Timothy. God is the one guarding the good deposit entrusted to us. The gospel will go forth. God's word will go forth regardless of what is happening in our world. The gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth, regardless of Nero, regardless of what happens to Rome, regardless of what happens in history, regardless of what happens in our world today, regardless of the outcome of the elections of 2024, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. There is no stopping it because God ultimately is guarding it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But not only is God guarding his gospel message, he is guarding his gospel carriers, his people. Paul's life and Timothy's life 
And our lives are being guarded by God, who is all-powerful. I said this earlier, but I don't think we can be reminded of this enough. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is why Paul is fearless in the face of death, because he knows God. He knows him, and he trusts him, and he is convinced that God will guard him. He will keep him until that day, until the day of his return, until the day when God will make all things new. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul said, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So, I have two questions for you today. Do you know him? Do you know him? I mean, personally, this God of whom Paul proclaims, have you answered his call to you, the call of repentance, the call to come and believe in Jesus, the call to a holy calling, is available to all who would believe and receive it. This is the beginning of knowing God personally and intimately. Answering this call to trust him and then walking forward in faith and trust, he gives you his Holy Spirit who will, through his word, make God known to you personally, intimately. I pray If you've not yet responded to the call of the gospel, that today would be the day that you begin this journey of knowing him. But some of you do know him. I know you do. But because of suffering, you are growing weary. Perhaps the flame in your heart is beginning to flicker. And I pray that the Spirit will breathe into your life through the power of his word, And that you will remember the God who saved you and called you to a holy calling. If you are feeling uncertain or confused in the midst of your suffering, fear is beginning to creep in and take over, fix your eyes, not on your circumstances, not on your suffering. Lift your eyes to the God who is guarding you and keeping you. Know him by his spirit, through his word. Grow in the knowledge of him and watch your confidence grow too. Watch your confidence in him begin to grow. As your confidence grows, so will the flame of faith be ignited once again. It takes time. Be patient. But keep looking to him. Know In all these things, in tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword, sword, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am convinced, I am 
100% confident that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths that are in your word about who you are and about what you've accomplished in the gospel and bring them into our hearts. Help us to receive them. Help us to absorb them. Help these truths about who you are permeate our very being and help us to live out of that. I pray that we would live out of all that you've done and all that you are in such a way that we are boldly proclaiming your excellencies wherever we go. We give you thanks. We give you praise. And Lord, help us to trust you. Grow our confidence in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.